Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the ACR network. That's the alternate current radio network.com and at 21st century wire.com. It is May the 3rd. 2015. It's a gorgeous spring day where we're sitting here. We're down in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know where you are out there, but uh, the weather here is uh, amazing. Well, it's a little bit hot, actually. It's about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but uh, we're sort of used to that down here. Uh, Our next guest uh, is a geopolitical analyst, and his website is stopimperialism.org. There's a link to that on the show page. His name is Eric Dreitzer, and the reason why we've called Eric uh, to come on the show this week, uh, Eric wrote a fantastic article uh, last week, uh, which is really detailing the what I see as a huge uh, problem, uh, which is a huge thorn in the side of Eurasia, which is there's U.S. providing military training uh, and, I believe, as well, probably weapons, uh, on some level anyway, uh, to the Ukrainian uh, paramilitary groups. And there's factions in there that are openly uh, neo-Nazi, not just sympathies, not just leaning, but actually uh, neo-Nazi in their uh, political rhetoric. And some people might call it neo-fascism, neo-Nazism. But to break this down, I'm bringing on Eric Dreitzer, uh, from live from New York City. Eric, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Eric. I mean, I've been following this, and I know you have from the beginning. I remember looking at how this was brewing in the Ukraine uh, over 12 months ago when we saw the, the color revolution being stirred up uh, in Kiev, and we saw some of our favorite uh, political personalities like John McCain showing up, leading the rallies. We learn about the right sector uh, groups, uh, political group in the Ukraine. We look at the fascist, neo-fascist, and neo-Nazi elements that were openly coming to the fore and we're all looking around talking on these shows like crosstalk on rt and i i saw you many times on that show uh talking with peter lavelle and the guests saying you know this this is not a good development here this is very dangerous uh this is the rebirth or the rise of neo-nazism and neo-fascism in europe or on the doorstep of europe eastern europe uh um, among many problems, Eric, that we have with the situation in Ukraine, that to me is a very dangerous thing. Uh, if you add that in with what's going on in the rest of Europe with the rise of nationalism and, you know, scapegoating immigration is a, to me, is a kind of a real scapegoat issue that always gets grabbed during times of economic strife and used as a political crowbar. Uh, that's what so that we've got that in Western Europe already with you, you just look in Sweden, in the UK, in Germany, in some of these countries. And then I look at what's happening in the Ukraine and that's very real. It's not like, is it going to get bad? No, it's bad already. Uh, I, this is the one year anniversary of the Odessa massacre. And if you don't know about what happened in Odessa just about one year ago, uh, it's one of the most brutal, horrific acts of political violence that I have ever, I've, I've seen in my lifetime. And I've seen a lot of ugly stuff. And that, to trap people in a burning building 
And then as the people jump out of windows from the fourth, fifth, sixth stories or third stories, and then after they jump, people are coming and beating them with clubs while they're on the ground. That's what we see in video from Odessa from last year. And no justice has come from this event, I can tell you right now. But um, Eric, I mean, I'm just breaking down a few vignettes here. But give us a little overarching summary here, uh, specifically recant or, or rephrase what was in your article uh, that you that you wrote recently, and just just paint the picture here of what we're looking at. Sure, thank you. I mean, I I agree with everything you said, and there's so much more. It's almost, I mean, it would take us hours, if not days, to run through all of the different aspects of this, because of course, there's a very important historical context in which people who may be less familiar with this issue need to understand. I mean, where these groups uh, draw their traditions from, of course, collaboration with the Nazis during World War II, and of course, the uh, internecine strife that has existed in that region, pogroms against Jews, pogroms against polls. I mean, there's a whole history to all of this, but if we're just going to kind of zero in on what we're looking at right now today, I mean, the article you referenced, I believe that was last week that I published that, basically documenting what the United States and its uh, NATO allies are doing as far as providing military training. This is the infamous, quote-unquote, military advisors, right? We see the U.S. using this uh, this wonderful phrase, military advisors, in every place that they want to destabilize, every place that they want to embed their people in the military architecture, embed their people in the command and control structure. This is how they do it. And these military advisors are now on the ground in Ukraine providing direct uh, military assistance and training to Nazi elements. And I mean, you know, I don't want to get into a semantic argument here, but part of the reason why I shy away from using the term neo-Nazi is simply because I don't want to present the illusion that their ideology is different from that of their grandfathers because Mm -hmm. it's actually exactly the same. I mean, they they carry on proudly that same tradition. So, uh, these Nazi groups, in particular, one of the most insidious ones is known as the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion is now uh, part of what they call in Ukraine the quote-unquote the National Guard. They've been incorporated into the National Guard, which is now essentially an adjunct of the Ukrainian military. And in many ways, and this is important for listeners to understand, many ways, the National Guard is more dependable than the Ukrainian military from the perspective of Kiev, because unlike the Ukrainian military, which to a large extent is more or less unwilling to really engage in the brutal massacres and some of this other stuff, these are ideologically driven fascists who absolutely do believe in the righteousness of their cause and who will carry out massacres and pogroms and all of this other stuff. And so, in many ways, they are kind of leaned on by Kiev and by some of these oligarchs like Kolomoisky and others who have been providing funding for right sector and for some of these other paramilitary forces. And so these are the elements that the U.S. military is now directly arming, directly training, and they're incorporating them also into a whole series of other military uh, maneuvers, exercises, drills that the U.S. has carried out. Uh, Rapid Trident is one of the famous ones uh, that they carry out every year. But these drills now 
now take on an added significance because it is within the maelstrom of this civil war that is going on in Ukraine, a civil war launched by the U.S.-backed puppet government. And so I think it, it should be clear to uh, listeners, even if they're not so familiar with the recent history, that what you're seeing is a ramping up of this conflict by the United States for the purposes of being able to exploit it because they see the reality on the ground. They know that they're, that they're, uh, the junta in Kiev is weak. They know that the military is, uh, is not dependable. And so what they want to do is get their people on the ground, put weapons into the hands of extremists, and let them do their thing. Yes, and when you talk about the difference between, you know, people need to understand the difference between the Ukrainian army or the, the, the you know, the regular soldiers and the Az- Azov Battalion and some of these uh, Nazi uh, paramilitary groups, these fundamentalist, I, I don't, that's even a generous term, but they, these are kind of like militias, but they're not militias, they're, it's, it's, it's heavily politicized uh way 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 off off the edge of the right wing and they have different levels there's those with uh guns those with sticks those with chains and then those who are just football hooligans who go believe it or not i've got a video up at 21stcenturywire.com right now that you can watch that shows these people in yellow shirts going around on public transport just intimidating people uh, going about their daily business, uh, intimidating people politically, uh, and trying to uh, antagonize or root out any dissenters uh, against their uh, fascist movement. And if I could, if like I could brown interject. shirts, like the brown exactly. shirts, right? That's exactly that's exactly what I was going to say. Is this is exactly what I'm talking about? Is that when we use when I use a term like Nazis or fascists, I'm drawing on this historical uh, this historical context for people to understand. That's precisely what the black shirts uh, and the brown shirts in Italy and in Germany were doing in the 1920s and the 1930s. That sort of political intimidation. This is how you rule and control the streets, and this is why we have to reject the Western propaganda when they say, "Oh well, the." Fascists Fascists are such a small percentage of the total, you know, body politic in in Ukraine. This is nonsense because they are the ones who are able to monopolize force. They are the ones who are able to turn out force on the street to crush dissent, to intimidate, to use political violence, and all of these other things. And again, when you look back at the events in Maidan uh, over a year ago, you see that there were these Euro liberals, these uh, you know NGO connected activists and whomever who were there, you know, in in interest of you know demo- democratic rights or whatever they they were talking about, but the ones who were really pushing the violence, the ones who caused the actual overthrow of the government, these were the fascists, these were the Nazis, these were the extreme violent elements, and these are the ones that you're, precisely the ones that you're talking about, the ones who perpetrated the vicious, brutal, uh, I mean, pogrom is really the word, uh, in May of last year, which uh, at the Trade Union's House building in Odessa, which killed almost 50 people, and which we've just commemorated the one-year anniversary of. Yeah, yeah, and the the other thing that that people, especially in the in the West, we we can't get our heads around. Maybe people in Europe can understand it a little bit better because at least World War Two is a distant memory, but it's still there. But especially in North America, people have no uh, concept of that level of potent uh, street politics. We we might get a taste of it here. Uh, with you know occupy or but it's more occupy is more of a peaceful 
was more of a peaceful demonstration. But this bringing, like, imagine Occupy for the right wing uh, with chains and sticks and beating people as they come out of political debates. This is what was happening in Kiev. Opposition candidates to the U.S.-backed regimes and to the far-right regimes, or anyone who's anti-fascist, quote-unquote, was beaten after a television debate. People were thrown in dumpsters. Politicians were chased out of town. People have ended up dead. Eleven journalists, or nine, nine, ten, or eleven journalists, opposition journalists, have uh, mysteriously died by suicide or have been killed in the last few months. That is serious. Okay, this is what what I believe the U.S. is supporting because Washington understands he who like the old Roman adage, he who controls the mob controls Rome, and that is the mob. This is the mob in Ukraine. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, the political violence that you're talking about goes actually much deeper than even just the, the you know, sort of fascist thugs on the streets. Because remember that this uh, government that's been installed by the United States, they have recently uh, essentially outlawed the Communist Party of Ukraine, which was always traditionally one of the two or three most powerful, most popular parties. The uh, former president, President uh, Yanukovych, his party was known as the Party of Regions. They have essentially been, uh, well, more or less disbanded by force. Uh, Many of the uh, MPs from that party have either had to flee or have been assaulted or brutalized in much the same fashion of what you're talking about. You have journalists who have been under attack. So imagine, and I mean, we don't even really have a parallel to that here in the U.S., but one could imagine if, you know, Republican or Democrat, irrelevant, if one of those parties was disbanded by force, you would have half the country that then looks at the political system as a sham. They say, you've now taken away those that party that we traditionally vote for that party that represents our interests and so why would we not only want to take part in your political process we now have a very real question as to whether we're even a part of this country anymore and that's actually part of what's at the root of a lot of the conflict with regard to east ukraine because the regions of donetsk and lugansk what's collectively known as the donbass these are working class regions right these are places with uh large proportions of coal miners steel workers you know people like this who have traditionally identified not only with Russia culturally, linguistically, ethnically, but they've identified with Yanukovych's party of regions or the Communist Party of Ukraine. And these two parties have been absolutely crushed through lustration, through intimidation, oppression, and various forms. And so you can imagine just, and we're only talking about the politics here, just from a political perspective, those people of East Ukraine have been not only marginalized, they've essentially been erased from the quote-unquote Ukrainian nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so they this beyond disenfranchisement. It's beyond that. This is your pers- whole sections of the population are labeled as personas non gratis. In other words, uh, they, they they're irrelevant. They don't exist. And what are you left with there, Eric? There's only a few options on the table. One of them is ethnic cleansing. The other one is extermination. Uh, and people are going to scoff at that. But but it, look at history. That's exactly what has played out in previous history in different parts of the world.
Exactly right. And of course, from the perspective of those in East Ukraine, what are they left with? To defend their homes and defend their families by force of arms. And that's exactly what they're doing. And this is part of the uh, conflict that we're talking about here. You know, they, the media wants to portray this all as like some kind of a proxy war that's been launched by Russia. Now, the whatever's going on behind the scenes, one can imagine the Russians are providing various forms of support. I think that's probably beyond question. But at the grassroots level, on the ground, these are working people young people, students, miners, factory workers, you know, office workers, and so forth. These are people who have picked up arms, uh, formed militias, and are defending their homes, defending their cities by force of arms because they understand that if they don't do that, they will be wiped from the face of the map. They will be made to flee to Russia. They will be made to essentially kneel uh, before a what can we call it, a Ukrainian ethnocentric, you know, worldview. Remember, West Ukraine does not, they they speak Ukrainian. In the East Ukraine, they speak Russian. These are ethnic Russians. Linguistically, they're Russian. They identify with Russian history and Russian culture. And the the Kiev junta, the U.S.-backed government, has attempted to do things like outlaw the Russian language, outlaw symbols of the Soviet Union, which, of course, is their tradition. And I would also just remind people, just because of the timing of, of this conversation, you know, we're speaking just a few days before the 70th anniversary of Victory Day, right? Mm-hmm. Victory Day in the what, what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War. And this is just as you were saying earlier, Patrick, and you're spot on, oftentimes those of us in the United States, in North America, it's difficult for us to grasp what World War II meant for those people, right? My family comes from the Soviet Union. My grandparents on both sides fought in, fought in the Red Army. They, for, for that generation and for their descendants in that uh, part of the world, you're talking about entire generation wiped out. Right, you're talking about millions of Soviet citizens who died—men, women, children, uh, uh, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers—who gave their lives for precisely this territory that is now being fought over. And so, if anybody thinks that somehow this is overblown, that this is Russian propaganda, I would urge them to speak to people who live in that region to understand how deeply rooted their uh, not only aversion and fear, but outright hatred of anything that smacks of fascism, what that represents for them. Well, this is precisely the issue. Uh, If you look at at the Ukraine as as a country, you look at how it's currently divided along uh, ethnic or uh, political lines and regionally, and you see an almost perfect overlay to the division which occurred during the Second World War. And for those people who are not familiar with uh, Germany's uh, march uh, eastward to try to occupy or retake what's known as the Heartland or the Eurasian uh, Bridge, as it were, uh, try to give, give us a quick synopsis of this, Eric, because I think it's important that people understand that these are, uh, this pattern, these trenches have been dug you know, 70, 80, 90 years ago, and they still exist, and this is exactly where the action is happening right now, and divided almost along identical lines. 
That's exactly right, Patrick. And you know, so and it's not. And, and remember, we're not just talking about the, the the German forces, right? You had various elements in that region who allied themselves with the Nazis, who took part in ethnic cleansing and pogroms, in part, you know, part of this larger Holocaust narrative, right? So you have Germans, the German army, marching eastward, right? They they take over Poland relatively quickly, and anybody who under who has a you know a map in front of them or a basic understanding of geography. The uh, Poland and Western Ukraine are essentially indistinguishable from each other. Uh, the city of Lvov or Lviv in the west of Ukraine today has historically been Polish. Uh, there's a there's an overlay religiously because they identify with the uh, the Catholic Church as the Poles do, as opposed to the Eastern Orthodox Church. So there's a religious and a cultural overlap between Western Ukraine and Poland. And as the Germans march eastward into the Western Ukraine, this is where you see uh, the beginning of the pogroms in 1941 in the city of Lvov, where the Nazis were greeted by the Ukrainian fascists as essentially, you know, uh, well, let's call them liberators, right? And this is the beginning, the 1941 pogrom against the Jews and the Poles in Lvov happens at precisely this moment. Moving further eastward, the massacres, the pogroms in Kiev, the, the famous one, of course, being Baba Yar, where tens of thousands of Jews and gypsies and others were massacred by uh, not by those allied with the Nazis, such as those from Galicia in the west of Ukraine and other uh, military forces and irregular forces. So this move eastward, what the what what's called the Black Earth belt, right? This is some of the most, the richest agricultural land anywhere in the world. This is a major prize for the Germans and part of their eastward march towards Russia, towards Russia proper. And the battle lines, what the Soviet Red Army was defending, they were not just defending Russia, they were defending the Soviet Union, and the point at which they really, uh, they, they gave everything in battles at Kiev, in battles around Odessa, in battles in Minsk, in Belarus, and all throughout this region this was the front lines, right, for the Soviet Red Army. And you're talking, like I said, millions died, millions of Soviets. And when I say Soviets, remember, this is not simply Russians. This is Ukrainians, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, uh, you know, Russians and so forth. All of these groups that were part of the Soviet Red Army that sacrificed, I mean, an entire generation for precisely this land that is now being fought over. And so when you have United States supporting Nazi elements in this part of the world, there is a historical um, significance to that that, is, that should not be understated with the, uh, as far as the Russian uh, worldview goes. Yeah, and you know, just from the loss point of view, you know, when we talk about war and we talk about history, and Americans can relate to what I'm about to say, the, the, the numbers are very important, and that it's used by people as a kind of a gauge or to, to provide some kind of equation of mass to the conflict. For instance, when we talk about the Vietnam War, the, the, the statistic which I uh, always remember, which has been reinforced in my head through my studies or teaching or from the media, is 55,000 young American boys died in Vietnam. And of course, you can add to that uh, 1 million plus uh, Vietnamese uh, citizens, but that's neither here nor there for the American conversation. 55,000 American young boys, average age is 19. Now, that's the numbers there. The numbers we're talking about with World War II from America, we're talking about 
400,000, maybe 300, high 300s, low 400s, uh, with the British, uh, similar numbers, three to 400,000, with the French, um, not sure, maybe less, 200 something thousand. Uh, with the Germans, I don't know those numbers. But with the Russians or the Soviet Union, uh, the numbers we're talking about are upwards in excess of 20 million, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and this, this, that's on a whole nother scale of, of national sacrifice, of, uh, of tragedy, of generational uh, devastation. It's on a whole nother scale. So we have very little appreciation for that. At least I, I'm gleaning that from watching U.S. State Department briefings every week, that they have very little uh, uh, sensitivity towards that very real reality uh, with regards to where the Russian conversation is coming from and also where the people in the east of the Ukraine, these Russian-speaking people, uh, who, and then looking at what appears to be uh, this kind of reemergence of Nazism in their own country with the U.S. backing it. I mean, this is a cocktail from hell in terms of, and, and I don't think Americans are fully appreciative of the weight of the symbolism of what's going on now and them backing these actions in the country of the Ukraine. They're, they do not appreciate the long tail uh, <laughs> issue here. And, and, and they, it's it, beyond a lack of perspective. It's, I'm almost speechless just from a basic understanding of history, just to understand that national loss issue. To, to, you, you put that into context here. And then you look at the way Jen Psaki or Marie Harf or John Kerry or any of these people are carrying on with the hyperbole that they keep spinning around and around and around about who's to blame in the Ukraine. And I'm looking at that and I'm look, watching these people with armbands and swastikas marching through the streets right now. And I, I can't believe people don't see it. That's absolutely right. You hit it on. You hit the nail on the head. Let me throw out a couple of other historical uh, parallels or uh, piece of information for people to put it into context. Um, and you know, you're from. You're, you're an American. I'm an American. I'm born and raised in the U.S. I went to public schools. I, you know, I absorbed um, U.S. Uh, you know, American sort of propaganda about how World War II went. It. I. Not until I was an adult and well into adulthood did I even understand the difference in terms of the uh, war effort between the United States and the Soviet Union. For instance, the United States in Europe, in its, in its war in Europe, took on 10 German divisions. The Soviet Union took on 100 German divisions. Okay, when you say 20 million Soviet dead, remember, when we're talking about Americans killed in the war, we're talking about our young men who went to serve overseas. When you're talking about 20 million Soviets, you're talking about their young men and their women and their grandparents and their children who were killed in bombing raids, who were killed in invasions and pogroms and all of these things. So it's it, it, they're almost incomparable in the sense of the kind of sacrifice that you're talking about, the historic scale of that sacrifice. So 20 million is not just 20 million soldiers. It's 20 million 
Soviet citizens, people, regular people. And so, again, just as you said, when you see these uh, uh, fascists marching in the streets of Kiev, carrying portraits of Stepan Bandera, the infamous Ukrainian Nazi collaborator, right, uh, torchlit marches at night resembling Nazi marches in the 1930s. I mean, mm-hmm. there is a historical resonance for Russians and for Eastern Ukrainians and really for anti-fascists all throughout the region that is difficult to grasp for Americans. And the propaganda that we get about the U.S. in World War II, I mean, this is absolutely a distortion of history. And they have uh, very little concept, I find, of Americans, have very little concept of what really happened in that period. And actually, the indoctrination goes further than that because, again, part of what they've done since that uh, period is essentially tried to equate the Soviet Union with Nazi Germany as if these two things are equal, as if, you know, Soviet communism and German Nazism are the same thing when, in fact, one defeated the other and saved Europe. Mm, yeah, the battle for the battle against fascism in Europe. And uh, here's another thing that I want you to to tell me what you think about this as well. When the Second World War finished, and when the the, the West, Western Europe and the United States shifted into uh, Cold War mode, uh, and then you had the polarization, Soviet Union and the NATO, for instance. Now, the, people might not be aware, whenever a war finishes, uh, during the war, there's lots of intelligence activity going on, lots of spying, uh, espionage, counter-espionage. This was going on in Europe during the Second World War. When the war finished, came to an abrupt halt, uh, peace treaties were signed and then repolarized with the West versus the Soviet Union. You have what's called stay-behind operations. And East, uh, what became East Germany and what became the... Uh, German intelligence apparatus or the Nazi intelligence apparatus uh, then morphed into something else, but those assets remained on the ground. NATO intelligence then drew off of, in other words, if there were uh, Nazi collaborator groups who were ultra-nationalist and fascist, those were being groomed after the war and kept almost even trained in some cases, if we're talking about Poland uh, and the west of the Ukraine, training going on, uh, the stay-behind operation remains and kept in waiting for a time in the future uh, where it can be used to uh, enact regime change, for instance, in a country, or to right. create an uprising. Do, do, you, do you see this as, ha- is this what happened after the Second World War? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, you're nailing the main point here. Not only did you have stay-behind operations in Ukraine, the United States brought over many of these Ukrainian fascists and, and Nazi collaborators to the United States. And, I mean, we, I know we don't have time to go into all of this, but if you really examine the, the nitty-gritty history, the secret history of the so-called Ukrainian nationalist groups that are in the United States, for example, the founders of those groups were Nazi collaborators who the U.S. intelligence apparatus brought over for the purposes of having assets in the United States who could serve as a bridge to the assets, the stay-behind assets, as you mentioned, that were in Western Ukraine, that were in Poland, that were in the, uh, the, the, the Baltic states, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, all throughout this whole region. And that's absolutely correct. And I think 
one of the one of the sort of let's call it hidden history elements of uh, the po- the immediate post World War II period is that a lot of people know that the United States brought over uh, important Nazi scientists, brought over important uh, you know Nazi bureaucrats, and kind of incorporated them. Whether you're talking Werner von Braun with NASA or some of the others, right? You had that, and a lot of people know about that. But what they don't know about are all of the other elements all throughout Eastern Europe that the United States did the same exact thing for just as you mentioned, regime change, destabilization of the Soviet Union, intelligence gathering, all of these things. That's precisely what they did. And these are the antecedents of the people that we're talking about today. These are their grandfathers, right? These are the people who uh, serve as sort of the ideological ancestors of the people that we are uh, talking about here today. And this is why, as I said, there there is a tangible uh, relevance for the people of eastern Ukraine, for people in Russia, that is difficult for Americans and Westerners to comprehend. Yeah, and and uh, in terms of <clears throat> in terms of NATO right now, uh, so essentially NATO has a beachhead right now in the form of the Ukraine. Uh, they're not officially part of NATO, uh, they're not officially part of the EU either, and they won't be for quite some time by the, by the looks of it. But uh, you know, NATO has a beachhead in the Ukraine, and they're working in a proxy fashion, uh, manipulating the government in Kiev uh, to, I, I believe they're egging them on to carry on an unwinnable civil war against the East. And now we're training uh, their military. The U.S. wants to provide training and weapons. And the justification for this, it seems to me in the media, Eric, is our political uh, persons are justifying this on the basis of that the Ukraine is in a war against Moscow and they can't win that war without the U.S. providing help. That's the narrative that I see constructed there, which is a real simple... Uh, dialectic that they've constructed, which is that, and it, and again, this brings us to the theme of our show. This is like uh, this is one of those catch twenty twos. So this is cir- using circular logic, uh, where the premise of the argument uh, has never been proved, and therefore the conclusion is completely bogus. And we're in we're we've entered into a very bizarre realm of political and geopolitical speak, especially in the United States with a lot of this circular logic being uh, implemented where it none of it makes sense in, in any way because the premises of it is completely false. That Russia it has started the hostilities in the Ukraine, that Russia has is responsible for the destabilization of the Ukraine, that Russia uh, has troops on the ground, and those are the obvious ones. But again, on and on it goes. And that justifies... The U.S. doing what it's doing now, which is completely uh, confrontational in that region. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I know that other people have made this parallel, but I mean, just imagine if you could, and it's almost unimaginable, but imagine if you could, if, if, if Russia were stirring up a civil conflict in the, on the border of Mexico and the U.S. I mean, imagine if Russia were arming, you know, Mexican rebels along the Texas or Arizona border. How would the United States respond to that? And what would the United States do? And then compare that to what I would consider extraordinarily moderate 
response by Russia with regard to what's happened in eastern Ukraine. And I think that gives at least some degree of a parallel or, or maybe a, uh, um, a parallel that, that puts it into perspective exactly what's happening there. And look, the reality is that the that NATO NATO's eastward march has been ongoing since 1989 and the end of the Soviet Union, right? There was that sort of quote-unquote, handshake agreement uh, between the Soviets and the Americans at the end of the Cold War, where basically Gorbachev was given assurances by George H.W. Uh, Bush and by that administration that, uh, that NATO, that if the Soviet Union dissolved and lifted the Iron Curtain, that NATO would not move one inch eastward. And then, of course, as soon as it happened, NATO has marched further and further and further east, incorporating Poland, incorporating the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, incorporating many of the former Eastern Bloc countries either directly into NATO, such as Poland, or de facto into NATO, such as, you know, a number of the other countries. And at the same time, we all, I, well, maybe I shouldn't say all, but I think most people listening certainly remember the NATO war on Yugoslavia that dissolved Yugoslavia, bombing of Serbia, de, uh, detachment of Kosovo away from Serbia. And now, if you ask people who are in the know about what goes on in Kosovo, they'll tell you that Kosovo is more or less a, a NATO military base, a forward operating base for NATO. And the Russians understood this quite quite clearly, but in the 1990s, they were still very weak. They were unable to provide any resistance at all to the NATO agenda. Now, you fast forward another 15 years, and they see NATO moving further east, and now they're not just taking over Yugoslavia and destroying Yugoslavia, they're taking over Ukraine. And Ukraine is historically a part of the, well, what was at one point the Russian Empire. Remember that the Russians come out of the what's called the Kievan Rus. The city of Kiev is the uh, homeland of the Russian people, that Russian ethnic group, right? So to, to, to many people in Russia, they see Kiev and they see Ukraine as more or less Russian historically. And so when you have NATO moving eastward into Ukraine, stirring up trouble there, overthrowing a government in yet another color revolution, right? This is now an existential threat to Russia. That is how they see it. I think that that's a pretty objectively true way to look at it. And so naturally, you have countermeasures that have been put in place since then. And that's why Russians have provided the minimal support that they've provided to the rebels in eastern Ukraine. That's why Russia has blocked in the UN Security Council. That's why Russia has finally taken its stand and said there's going to be no more eastward movement of NATO. This ends here. And that's the stalemate you see in Ukraine right now. And unfortunately, the intransigence of the political establishment in the United States and its lapdogs in Europe and NATO generally is making this conflict. Look, I hate to say it because I don't like to be a doomsday scenario type of guy, but I mean, this is driving the world towards a possible world conflict. I mean, if you look at the history of 1914 and you look at the history leading up to World War II, this is how world conflicts begin. Yeah, this is this is power politics writ large, is is what it is. And you know, I <clears throat> I naively thought 
uh, growing up in, uh, you know, after I graduated from university, living through the 90s and uh, into 2000s. Yes, the world has its problems with uh, what what I consider the, the fake war on terror. But I thought that at least, you know, Eric, that at least power politics, we can put that behind us, you know, World War One style uh, alliance based daisy chain power politics. You know, at least we've got rid of that, right? We've progressed. We've evolved. We're, we've come down from the trees and we're walking upright finally. But that's not the case. And that to me is the most horrific realization looking at this situation right now and how twisted it has become in the media. But the fact that it's real, that, that this isn't like a theoretical thing that, wow, uh, Nazism is alive and going strong in Europe, like real Nazism. And uh, uh, to me, that that's the hardest thing to accept that it's it's gone beyond the theoretical realm the danger realm the possibility realm that it's actually there and it's not being it's being denied in the US media it's being covered up it's being written off by our politicians oh it's there's no nazis in the ukraine you must be joking that's a crazy conspiracy theory you know but it's real and i look at the horror on the people's faces around town as they're being beaten or chased or, you know, thrown into dumpsters or beaten with clubs and sticks. I look at the, I look at that and it's, hor- it's horrific to look at the terror in people's eyes, you know, to witness that. Um, and I, I, uh, it's, it's, def- I don't know what to say, Eric. It's, uh, I never thought I'd see it in my life. Well, you know, it, there's a couple of things I would say to that. I mean, I of course agree, but you know, I think Americans, because of the sort of the nature of uh, of American hegemony and dominance, um, they don't even have. And, and I'm not just talking about the American people, but I mean also the political establishment, the ruling elites. Um, they don't even really have a conception of what a real war would look like because they're all they understand of war is basically that the U.S. gets to bomb people, invade people, and pay a very, 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 very small price. You know, maybe a thousand people here, a couple hundred here, a couple dozen there, right? Some billions get made for the military-industrial complex, and that's it. Clean, tidy, and we get to go home and call it a day. But what we're talking about in this case is something far larger. Russia is a not only a nuclear power, this is a world power. I mean, not a superpower anymore, of course, but they are a world power. Their military is, uh, I mean, second to none to a large degree. Their nuclear arsenal is massive. These are, this, is a, this is a country that is not to be trifled with. And when you, and of course, I, the Russians don't want to necessarily have a World War scenario either because it will devastate them once again. But when you push and you push in this way, you escalate the p- conflict and you, and you sort of increase the possibility for a diplomatic or a political misstep, a miscalculation or something, just as you saw in 1914, leading to World War I. And I would add one other point to this too, is that, Remember that the world wars emerge out of the collapse of global systems, mm-hmm. right? It's when global systems begin to collapse that world wars and global conflicts, military conflicts emerge. In 1914, you were seeing the collapse of the European imperial systems, right? The British Empire was on the verge of financial collapse. The French Empire was teetering as well. The Russians, uh, the Russian Empire, of course, had been a sort of a degenerate, you know, uh, uh, fossil 
for a number of generations. All of them were competing over resources. The entire world was basically on the verge of a conflagration, and ultimately it was driven over the edge by Serbian nationalism and by the assassination of the Archduke, and you know certain key events which kind of set off the the, the initial spark for a global conflict. Right, and World War Two is merely a continuation of World War One if you look at it broadly mm-hmm. speaking. And um, I mean, look, we could go back even further. A hundred years earlier, the Napoleonic Wars, the end of one global system and the emergence of a new global system. A hundred years before that, the War of Spanish Succession is the same thing. I mean, these are global wars in their time. And now we're exactly a hundred years after World War One, after that collapse of a global system, and you see a, a global dollar system that is teetering on the brink of collapse. You see a world financial system, neoliberal capitalism. All of these things in many ways are in crisis, and some would say in an existential crisis. And that, to me, is the sort of historical, broad historical context that one needs to understand just how dangerous what the United States is doing in Ukraine, because it's like they're making you Ukraine of 2015 into the Balkans of 1914. And the the one system that I see, and I'll put this out to you, Eric, and then you can comment on it. But having lived in Europe myself for 20 plus years, and seeing when I arrived in Europe, there was very strong uh, national identities. There still are. uh, Believe, yeah, they're very strong national identities still, but politically, the the nation state identities as as political forces have become subservient to uh, two organizations politically the European Union and the militarily NATO. But before that, uh, there seemed to be a lot more uh, identification uh, with people and their nation state and. So we have that system. That, to me, is in a way a collapse of an old system. Uh, the nation-state identity uh, system now is replaced with what looks to me like a kind of a gang mentality, where you have a gang of countries, and the ones that are pushed on the fringe, like say, let's say Poland, for instance, or the Ukraine, not yet, but they're kind of being groomed. But let's say Poland is a good example, or Lithuania or Latvia, right on the edge of uh, of Russia's uh, borders there, and they pushed this fear, this overarching fear, and they use that in order to uh, buy. Certain people in Poland will buy into the militarization of their country uh, for missile defense systems. Uh, we need giving you money and hardware to augment your air force. Uh, NATO air patrols, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To certain people in Poland, they're gonna, and they're on the fringe of this gang. They're going to look at this like, well, we've we've arrived in a way. Uh, we're joining up with a bigger gang to uh, offset this potential threat of the the Russians there. So Russia's a nation state. Europe is a gang. That's that to me. I see a major shift in perception. I think that's a really important. I don't know what your thoughts are. I would agree with you. Um, although I would, I would maybe use the terminology a, a little bit differently because the parallel, the metaphor that you're making as far as gangs go, I think is 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 quite apt. But I would also say that the creation of the European Union is more or less the seizure of power by a ruling establishment, a financial establishment that basically uh, uh, created a situation in which they could exercise their hegemony over the entire continent rather than individual nations. Right. So you have institutions. 
like the IMF or in Europe, the European Central Bank or the Bank of International Settlements or many of these other uh, various uh, international institutions. And they have overlapping individuals and groups and factions and cliques, which more or less make up one ruling class in Europe that has taken over the entire continent with its European Union politically, allying itself with NATO and allowing the United States to essentially provide the muscle behind their uh, further establishment, further entrenchment of their forces. And I think, look, a good example of this is what you, if you follow the situation in Greece, look at what the European financial establishment has done to Greece. I mean, they're making Greece uh, get down on their knees and crawl through the mud and kiss the ring of German financiers, of uh Swiss financiers, of French financiers, and all of the rest of these of these elements, they're the ones who control the European Union, which in many ways is almost not even really a political institution. It's more of a let's call it a uh, a weapon that is used to essentially exert the hegemony of key interests in Europe and in the United States over the rest of the continent. And that's precisely what's happened. And that's actually part of the reason why, just as you said, Russia's a nation, European Union is, is sort of a supranational entity. And that's part of the reason why you see the Russians providing support for any elements in Europe that present an obstacle to the European Union establishment. So that's why the Russians will back Syriza, a left-wing government in Greece, just as they'll back Marine Le Pen, nationalist government, or not government, but government-in-waiting, I think we could say, in France, just as they'll back all kinds of elements from the from left wing parties in Scotland to right wing parties in Hungary, because mm-hmm. what they're representing is a resistance against this uh, European class, this clique of a uh, very small number of elites who have allied themselves with the global military power of NATO in order to exert their hegemony. Uh, I would just add very quickly also, at the same time that Russia is doing that, Russia is making moves towards building its own multilateral international institutions. Of course, the BRICS and the BRICS Development Bank, the Russian-Chinese relationship, which is really flourishing since the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is founded by Vladimir Putin, dominated by Russia and China, uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which has been founded by China. All of these new institutions are coming onto the scene to present a counterweight against the European Union, the United States, NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, all of these institutions. And so anyone who's interested in stability and global peace has to see these developments in a positive light because a counterweight against that single power hegemony can only mean some kind of stability. And and you mentioned the uh, Asian infrastructural bank there, just as a caveat. I know that, uh, I believe, Washington laid out sort of marching orders to most European countries, like, don't you dare sign that, uh, be a founding member of, of that institution. And I think uh, quite a few countries broke rank, if I'm not mistaken, including Great Britain and, uh, and others. Is, it, is that what happened? That's exactly right, and part of the reason was because the 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 U.S. Well, look, this is this is part of the slowness of the U.S. ruling elites to uh, recognize the waning power that they have and the waning influence that they have. Because there was a time not very long ago where if the United States told a European country not to do something, that European country didn't dare do it. And today, it's not that way anymore. Even a country as closely allied to the U.S. as Great Britain says, "You know what? We have our interests to some degree." 
and we want to join the Asian Infrastructure Bank. Now, the reason that institution was established, though, was not because the Chinese wanted to have, you know, leverage against the Americans. It's because the Americans refused to allow proportional representation for the Chinese in the IMF. The Chinese are, uh, you know, one of the, the world's biggest economy by many measures now are, are essentially minority players in the IMF, have almost no say in economic policy, financial policy, fiscal policy with regard to the IMF or the World Bank or any of these institutions. And the Chinese are looking at, looking at the rest of the world and they're saying, well, wait a second, you want us to make goods for you, manufacture goods for you, you want us to be a global driver of industrial growth and exports, and you won't even give us a seat at the table? in your financial institutions, well, hey, we'll build our own financial institutions and we'll get everyone to follow us. And that's what they're doing. And do, So do you think this is a little bit of um, there's there's two parallel so there's two parallel uh, uh, things going on here simultaneously. Uh, one is I think personally, Eric, that the, the, the end game in terms of this is 20th, 20th century 1.0 planning and thinking, empire building, or neo-colonialism, whatever you want to call it, is to uh, create a, a color revolution, soften up Russia for a color revolution, uh, and then have regime change there to get a Western-friendly, EU-friendly uh, government in Russia. That's the To me, that's the end game. But that's 1.0 uh, late 20th century uh, hegemonial thinking, planning, strategy. And then simultaneously, it's pushing Russia closer to Asia in ways that have never been seen before. And they're even talking about uh, constructing, or they're in the process of constructing a, 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 a rival system to the uh, interbank swift payment system for clearing money, which is huge. Okay, um, So there's these two parallel things happening at the same time. In a way, it's a race against time uh, for for the West if they want to destabilize Russia internally and politically and just decimate it from the inside, gut it politically from the inside in order so it can be absorbed into uh, a greater European Union from the Atlantic to the Pacific. That's the long-term goal. That's what I've read uh, in some of the old, old EU documents, uh, forward planning. This is going back, you know, 60 years. But that's Brzezinski, you know, I mean, that's Brzezinski's grand chessboard, right? In 1997, his book, I mean, he lays that out more or less. I mean, he uses uh, maybe, let's call it softer language and not quite so transparent about what exactly the, the plans are. But ultimately, that's Brzezinski imperialist thinking. And I mean, that's, you know, Kissinger and Brzezinski and all of these, that whole, you know, generation. That's how they sort of see the world. And I think part of what's been so difficult for the U.S. establishment is in recognizing that that's simply not going to happen given the current uh, you know, strategic calculus and this is part of the reason why they demonize Putin to such a degree because Putin represents everything that is a block against that strategy remember and I lived in Russia very briefly in the early 1990s when uh, in the, you know, the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the economy there. Mm-hmm. And that country was being gutted. It was in the process of being gutted just as what you're laying out. <laughs> gutted economically, all of the former Soviet you know, state uh, assets, the infrastructure, the, uh, you know, the, the, the state assets, generally speaking, were being stripped and sold for parts by uh, these, you know, uh, what we now call the oligarchs, who are basically just uh, 
capitalist gangsters with um, Chechen muscle and various other international gangs that they employed. They were selling it off to Wall Street speculators and Western interests who were coming in and buying in for, you know, more or less pennies on the dollar or kopecks on the ruble or whatever, you know. And um, that was happening. And Yeltsin was sort of this bumbling foolish leader who was weak and feckless and allowed all of this to continue. And then 1999 and 2000 and Putin emerges and he was sort of an unknown quantity when he came to power. No one really knew who this guy was. I mean, they knew he sort of came out of the KGB apparatus, but he was more or less a bureaucrat, you know, and they didn't know what to expect. And as the last 15 years have developed, Putin's position has hardened even further because he's seen the double dealing of the United States and the Europeans. He's stretched out his hand repeatedly to them because, well, let's face it, Putin is not a con. Putin is a capitalist. Putin believes in the, you know, capitalist system more or less. And he wanted to integrate Russia into that global system. And what happened? They wanted to treat Russia as a second class citizen. They wanted Russia to accept those diktats. And Putin and Russia simply wouldn't. And that's part of the reason why it's come to this now and why Russia has turned away from the West and has looked to China and has looked to Iran and has looked to Latin America and has looked to some of these other centers of global power that are emerging to say, you know what, if they don't want us to be part of their system, we're going to build our own system. And so coming back to the topic of what we've been talking about here, Ukraine is in many ways the focus of all of this. It's sort of the the microcosm of this conflict between West and East that has emerged because of this belligerent policy of hegemony and imperial domination that the U.S. and Europe and NATO has been pushing. Yes, yes, I I see. I I, I don't see the projection of power uh, traditionally anyway from Washington. Uh, as having nearly the effect that it might have had over the last seventy years, I think we're, I think we're heading into a completely new paradigm, um, whereby the, the that old sort of uh, Brzezinski, the, 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 they still have the desires, they still have the goals. There's people that own certain agendas and think tanks in Washington, and they've their whole academic careers have been predicated on, uh, you know. McKinder's Heartland theory, or um, I forgot which admiral, a famous U.S. admiral, uh, who's a historian, who a lot of our foreign policy uh, fundamentals have been based on that sort of strategic thinking, and we're we're just watching it just dissolve in front of our eyes, but we still have the remnants of the aggression playing out um, through various various ways and means and so forth. But uh, I, I think they're going to have a hell of a time. Uh, right now, and I think I think the conflict is more. Um, it, it it is really about the death of imperialism in its old form, and it's trying to reinvent itself through, you know, subversive clandestine or proxy or George Soros means. But um, I think there's definitely a major that ideological shift is happening, and it's going to take a lot. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage because of it. I think Ukraine is some of that collateral damage we're, we're witnessing right now. But, it, right. He, but Eric, do you think the pressure that's being put on Russia by the United States, is that helping Putin's popularity or is it hurting it? 
Oh, it's strengthening it un- unquestionably, and this is not merely a Russian phenomenon. I mean, this is a this is a I think a quite a natural phenomenon that you see in any nation, particularly ones that have a strong patriotic and nationalistic history, just such as Russia does, such as the United States does. When you have moments of external crisis, uh, the tendency of people is going to be to rally around leaders, and and Putin, you know, in many ways he represents a kind of leadership that is almost difficult for Americans and. Westerners to understand because you know the political system in Russia is very very young. It's 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 still not even close to its mature stage, and mm. there is no seamless transitions of power in Russia. In many ways, the power is dominated by personality, and 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 mm. to a large degree, Russia's strength and Russia's political power is vested in Putin personally, mm. and uh, so. For Putin to be demonized, for Putin to be attacked, for Hillary Clinton, who's a warmonger of the highest order, as we saw in Libya and elsewhere, for Hillary Clinton and John McCain and people like this to talk about Putin as on par with Stalin, as on par with Hitler, which is, uh, aside from being anti-historical and a complete absurdity, is deeply offensive um, to Russians and to Russian sensibilities. It only rallies his support further, and this is part of the problem for the U.S. political elites is that the, the harder they push, the more they're, they're hardening Russia's position. And this creates a sort of difficult uh, uh, conundrum for Washington. How do we destabilize Russia while furthering our objectives? And the reality is they can't. They've been unsuccessful. And unfortunately, they're going to use the tried and true methods that have been successful all over the world in recent years of terrorism, extremism, separatism, and intelligence and covert uh, uh, subversion. And that's what you're seeing in Ukraine. That's why you see the U.S. establishment uh, uh, and clandestine networks that support Chechen terrorists in the Caucasus region who attack Russia and who see Russia as the great villain in the world. That's why you have all of these uh, connections between Washington and so-called terror groups, the you know the phantom menace of Al-Qaeda, the phantom menace of ISIS, all of these forces, all of these proxy armies that the U.S. and Israel and the Saudis and all of these elements that are part of that same imperial system, they're pushing all of these proxy forces because they're attempting to project uh, power without having to do it militarily because they know they can't do it militarily and increasingly they're unable to do it financially and economically. Look at how failed the uh, U.S. sponsored sanctions against Russia were. Now, they made a very brief dent in the Russian economy, caused some minor inflation but that was about it and the Russian economy has rebounded. The world is moving away from the hegemony of the dollar, moving towards a basket of currencies to be a new reserve currency system. The oil-based dollar is is more and more becoming a thing of the past. All of these levers of Western imperial power are gradually slipping away. Now, on the one hand, that's a positive development for those of us who want to see a more peaceful, stable, and multipolar world. On the other hand, it can be seen that that makes them more dangerous, more unpredictable, more willing to take risks and chances, and it's when imperial systems take risks and chances that global conflicts emerge. Yeah, and we at that, at that point we have very little control over the cause and effect, and how it's kind of a, it's a situation that's just tumbling. It's tumbling down the hill. It's like a rock that causes an avalanche. 
That's exactly right. And that's how people described it in 1914. If you read the accounts of the diplomats who were taking part in the negotiations in the Balkans, they, in reflecting on it after the war, they talk about how foolish and naive they were and how stupid some of the things that they were doing, some of the machinations that they were involved in, how stupid they were and how short-sighted they were, how they didn't realize the implications of what they were doing until after the fact. Of course, millions had to die and a continent had to be destroyed and the world had to be turned upside down in order for them to realize just how stupid they were. And and also, I, I, I was so... It was amazing. In, t- in 2013, August, September 2013, you had a situation which... At the time, uh, I said very publicly, I went on the news programs and whatnot, it's about the Syria chemical weapons attack. What, what do you think this was? I said, well, it, it looks like a false flag attack. Uh, I don't think the government would uh, launch a chemical weapons attack against its own people in Syria when the UN inspectors arrived that day. It's kind of exactly. ridiculous. Um, and many people said the same thing. And guess who stepped in to diffuse that situation to... You know, clearly, those of us who follow these sort of uh, agent provocateur or false flag events, we know what happened immediately in Damascus at that time. But Russia came in without pointing any fingers. Sergei Lavrov entered the floor, came up with a solution. It was a workable solution that no one could deny. And it it diffused what was potentially uh, a very bad uh, military aggression situation there with the U.S. leading uh, the charge for an airstrike against Syria on false premises. Lavrov enters the fort, gives a solution, a working solution, presents it to the international community, goes through international channels, goes through the U.N. It works. It diffuses situation. You have an armistice uh, right there from a bad situation to something workable, and that was Russia. Sergei Lavrov should have got the Nobel Peace Prize just on that basis for that act alone. And what they've achieved uh, from the Sochi Olympics and the demonization of Russia through the Ukrainian situation uh, forward to uh, the Crimean uh, demonization over Crimea's referendum that the U.S. is pointing that finger as well, what they've done is they pushed Russia. So Russia went from the front, the, the, the honest broker in the international community, the honest broker, moved them to the back seat, pushed them to the back where they can't step forward because right now they're hamstrung with regards to what Washington has initiated in the Ukraine uh, and Crimea uh, by, as well. But I think uh, Russia displayed its diplomat, Sergei Lavrov, I, I, I just think he's a genius in terms of a diplomat. And, and he's he, of the he's of the old school, you know. He's yeah. not the in the U.S. We don't even understand what diplomacy is because our diplomats are you know political appointees, right? These are guys who are you know they raised enough money for whichever party won the election, the the, the fraudulent sham election, but elections nonetheless. Uh, whichever party won it, whoever bundled the most money, they get the highest appointments, and so that's how you end up with you know people like Michael McFowl or people like Jeffrey Pyatt or whomever. These are U.S. Diplomats, whereas Lavrov comes from sort of the old school Soviet Union school of diplomacy, right?
right? These were these were uh, erudite individuals who spoke multiple languages, who were intellectuals, who were you know of the old school of diplomacy, and that's part of. I mean, that's what you're getting at. Lavrov was able to achieve something really monumental in Syria, and we should also remember too, in August of 2013, the United States was literally on the verge of a bombing war in Syria. I mean, I was marching in Times Square over that in August. I remember August 22nd of 2013, right after this happened. I wrote an article uh, debunk. I think the title was something like debunking the U.S. assessment of the use of chemical weapons in Syria. And I went point by point explaining how this is an absolutely fraudulent case that they're making for what is clearly a false flag carried out by so-called rebel terrorists in Syria. And I mean, you can lay out the case for all of this. The point is, and this is sort of feeding into what we're talking about here, this was the potential for a regional conflagration war in Syria that was going to be initiated by the United States and its allies, and Russia blocked it. And then, of course, since then, you've seen how all of these things have evolved from there, and the global conflict and the regional conflict has taken shape with yet another proxy, you know, ghost force of so-called ISIS, which they've used to sort of achieve by stealth what they attempted to do by force in 2013. Yeah, yeah, and and so I was I was very hopeful when that happened. I thought, wow, there's some balance. We're seeing some parity in the field here, and then th- those hopes were were dashed and reversed uh, uh, later on in the winter uh, after the Maidan. So, and again, it, it's going to be a constant push and pull here. What I like about Russia, uh, Eric, right now is. I believe that they've showed incredible restraint considering what has gone on and also all the uh, condemnation and the rhetoric that's coming out of Washington, false accusations and so forth. But they've shown a lot of restraint. And that, to me, says a lot. Just just the fact that, you know, if it was me, if I was in charge, I I don't know if I'd be able to hold back overt support for the uh, people in the east of the Ukraine, watching them get shelled, uh, watching ethnic cleansing going on five. 500,000 people being pushed out of their homes uh, over the border, staying in camps in Russia and so forth. I, I couldn't, I don't know if I could be that patient. They've shown incredible patience, incredible remember, restraint. Remember, Putin is the moderate here, right? Putin's got major elements in his military and then the political establishment that are far more hawkish than he is. Yeah. That, wanted, that wanted to send the Russian military in a full-blown intervention into Ukraine to topple the U.S. puppet government in Kiev, to reinstall Yanukovych. And, hmm, seems to me, I, I, I seen something in the news recently about a country that uh, bombs another country in order to reinstall a government that is loyal to its interests. Saudi Arabia is doing precisely that in Yemen. And remember, Saudi Arabia did it, not an eyebrow raised from the United States or from the United Nations. Russia didn't do it, and Russia's presented as an aggressor in Ukraine. This is the absurdity of the propaganda matrix that we're trying to pierce through. Yeah, the theater, this is the theater of the absurd. Uh, if there's ever been such a thing, this is, I mean, this is, comparing Yemen to the Ukraine, I mean, you, you, you can compare Syria to the Ukraine too, uh, with the, you know, the rebels there, uh, and then the backing or the arming or the training in Turkey and Jordan, but the, the of, of the West training the rebels or the moderates. But the, the, the thing in Yemen is even much more of a better example. Uh, and again, we could go into, to full, uh, analysis there, comparative analysis of those two things and showing the hypocrisy uh, of of what's going on. But I think the hypocrisy, and I'll leave, I'll leave 
I'll leave on this point, and I'll let you finish up, uh, Eric. But I think the hypocrisy that we tend to uh, identify and we tend to talk about as we want to hold our, our own government up to some sort of ethical and moral, moral standard. But I, I think the hypocrisy festers because of the mainstream media is probably the biggest culprit in terms of allowing hypocrisy to fester because there's a lack of information or lack of coverage or not asking the right questions. That's, to me, the enabler. The great enabler must be the media. Exactly right, and, and that's part of the value of what you uh, of what you do, Patrick. It's part of the value of what I'm trying to do. What a lot of us in the alternative media, and I would, and I, I don't even really necessarily consider the pseudo alternative media that's funded by you know foundations and major Wall Street entities, but whatever. I mean, the true alternative media. That's part of what we're doing is we're we're trying to pierce through that narrative, the false narrative that they're creating. And I mean, you mentioned hypocrisy. Look, I wrote exactly about this subject a few weeks back when the Saudi bombing campaign started. I forget. I think the article was titled uh, Yemen, Ukraine, and the Hypocrisy of Aggression, right? And you can look at the comparative analysis of those two. And I mean, it is plain as day how hypocritical the Western position is vis-a-vis Ukraine and vis-a-vis Yemen. And, you know, the, the media, look, the media is merely an extension of the ruling establishment. The ruling establishment controls the corporations that own all of the mainstream media, the, the corporate media, whatever you want to call it. They have a line. And they push that line. And I absolutely reject the notion. I know you weren't saying this, but many do. The notion that somehow they're incompetent, that somehow they don't know what they're doing. They know perfectly what they're doing. They're keeping the people under control. They're keeping the people stupefied. They keep the people ignorant and in the dark for the purposes of being able to further a geopolitical and economic and a strategic agenda that they want to push all over the world. And that's why you won't see see any critical analysis of what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen unless you tune into RT or Press TV or, you know, many of the other international outlets that are not part of that system, you know, unless you tune in to uh, your program or my my website or whatever, you have to get that alternative analysis to break free of this propaganda matrix that we're talking about. And it absolutely is a matrix. It's not just a monolithic propaganda entity. If you look at the Soviet Union, the Soviet times, you had Pravda, right? You had the state propaganda. Everybody knew what that was. Everybody understood it was propaganda and that you had to read between the lines. In the United States especially, I think the majority of people still don't understand how complex the propaganda system is here, how it overlaps with each other, how they'll present false narratives, false conflicts, false competing narratives in order to confuse, to dissemble, and to dissuade people from investigating and looking into the truth. So when you look at the uh, situation in Ukraine and you look at the way that the media covers it, you don't hear talk about Nazis. You hear talk about, quote-unquote, nationalists or ultra-nationalists, right? You don't hear talk about what Russia has actually provided in terms of diplomacy, what Russia has looked to do in terms of compromises, the bending over backwards of Gazprom and the Russian government with regard to energy supplies, with regard to pipelines, with regard to a number of key issues. You don't hear any of that because it goes against the dominant narrative. And the media controlling the discourse is one of the main ways in which the establishment and the empire pushes its hegemony. No, no, well said. Um, it, it is the media is the great, the great enabler. It allows this to happen. I mean, I, I could. I just saw another example today. 
I saw Geraldo Herald, Rivera's on Fox. Now he's one of their correspondents, senior political correspondent. It's a great title, but he was on one of their shows, and uh, they were talking. And Geraldo actually broke rank on Fox. He said that Iran is not the biggest threat, and it, they're not behind international terrorism. He said Saudi Arabia is, and the host just went ballistic. And started um, cutting him off uh, at, at mid-sentence every time he tried to talk after that. And the host said, well, uh, you know, but I, who's funding the Islamic terrorists? Who's funding ISIS and al-Nusra? It's Iran, isn't it? And Geraldo says, it's not Iran. Iran why would Iran fund ISIS? You know, they're fighting ISIS. Um, but... So even even when one of their own might might wake up that morning and say, "I've got an original thought. I'm going to express that when I go on the on the on Neil Cavuto today or something like that," they, they get beaten down like a whack a mole. I just I just saw Geraldo get get whacked on air on his own network. You know, so it's yeah, like but it's like you know it's like what we've you know what we talk about a lot with controlled opposition, right? So you present the illusion that the you know that you're allowed to speak freely on Fox because Geraldo broke rank when he dared to uh, mention the fact that Palestinians are human beings and not savage animals to be you know uh, slaughtered at will by Israel, right? When he said that, all of a sudden he's demonized on Fox News as some kind of a you know uh, weakling when it comes to the issue of Israel. Right. But I mean, does anybody really believe that Geraldo Rivera stands for truth or stands for any kind of, you know, <laughs> anything resembling no, that, uh, that uh, ship, objectivity? That, it's like it's no, a joke. You know, that what I ship mean? left the, left the harbor a long time yeah, ago. Exactly. <laughs> so that's why, you know, and it's funny because, you know, I I tune into Fox uh, regularly so that I can kind of see how things are being spun, how they're framing everything. And I'll, you know, I, I tune in to be honest, Fox is far more entertaining for me than MSNBC, which does very similar thing. But on the other you know, f- fake end of the political spectrum. Mm. But in any case, my point being that this is all controlled. Whatever, whatever breaking of ranks you see in these media establishment, these media outlets, it's all controlled opposition. It's all very, very minor, and none of it really changes the discourse, changes the narrative. And I think that that is the value of the alternative media. That's the value of alternative analysis, and that's the value of what you're doing, what I'm doing, and what a lot of us are doing. Well, yes, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. But you know, we're we're a hundred percent independent. Uh, we just, you know, we our readers really keep us floating uh, uh, in in our boat that has so many holes in it. But I know you're independent as well, Eric. And there's a number of very good independent pundits out there. These are the people that uh, whose articles uh, that we also republish as well, and we have some of them writing for us too. And uh, we're going to stay independent. You know, I could I could have easily, uh, you know, at some point, uh, someone might have wanted to buy our property, as it were, online, our our website, our traffic, our readership, or whatever. And I'm not really interested in that because I know it's going to happen, and uh, everything that we've worked to to build up over the last six years is just going to go up in a puff of smoke. You know, so exactly. it's going to stay independent, and uh, that's just the way it's going to be, and it has to be that way. So we're in it for the long. We're in it, in it for the long haul, as it were. I might go to work for some other network, or I might do a show on someone else's channel. But that's that. Whatever you know, my information clearinghouse at Twenty First Century Wire is independent, and will always stay that way. Um, and I know that you're you're fiercely independent as well. And I think you, you're going to attract a certain type of uh, fan base or readership that that is coming to you for that very reason because they know that you're they know you're independent 
Yeah, and I mean, in, uh, independent, and of course, you know, everybody has their political positions, their ideologies, their perspectives, whatever. And I don't think that anybody's free of bias. I don't, I don't believe in these, you know, f- notions of quote unquote objectivity. Nobody's objective if you're a human being. You have a subjective worldview. You have an opinion. Um, but at the same time, uh, part of what what I try to do, what I know what you try to do, is to present perspectives that are not only you know opinionated and biased and and subjective, but also ones. That that appeal to a sense of truth, right? That, that that say, you know what, regardless of what your political persuasion may be, regardless of your perspective on, you know, economic issues or whatever, if you want to know what's going on in the world, come to me because you could trust me because I'm not taking money from anybody. I'm presenting what I believe to be the real world as it exists, the material reality that we see around us. And you can count on mine to be authentic. You can count on mine to be independent and you can count on mine to not take any, you know, no holds barred to not take any prisoners because quite frankly i don't see any reason to be doing what you're doing and what i'm doing if you're beholden to some outside interest we're beholden only to the truth uh, well said well said eric trait sir and uh, eric your website is stop right Exactly. StopImperialism.org. I'm also a regular contributor to Counterpunch. Uh, I'm a regular contributor to New Eastern Outlook. I'm a regular contributor to RT, Press TV, a number of other outlets as well, Global Research. Um, so my, my work is out there. You can find it. But my website, StopImperialism.org, is sort of the clearinghouse where all my stuff can be found. Excellent. There's a link to that on our show page at the Sunday Wire today, Eric Drates, and we'll hopefully be uh, putting more of Eric's work up at 21st Century Wire too, if we can keep up with him, because uh, he's uh, he's producing stuff at a at a feverish rate. But um, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. I really appreciate your time, and uh, and hopefully we can uh, we'll we'll reconnect at a future date because there's there's a lot of ground to cover in some of these areas. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Eric Dreitzer, you can reach his work at stopimperialism.org there at 21st Century Wire. And uh, when we get a few more articles from Eric, we'll, we'll create an archive of some of Eric's work up on the site in the future as it accumulates. But uh, we're going to take a short, very short commercial break, about a one and a half minute commercial break. And we're going to reconnect our next guest live from the United Kingdom, Stuart J. Hooper, running for Parliament. Uh, the youngest candidate in the field this year uh, in his early 20s. We're going to connect with Stuart and find out how the election's going uh, in a minute. So we'll be right back. This is the Sunday Wire, and I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. 